0: You're listening to the Road Not Taken Podcast, upstate New York's number one home for thoughtful, accurate commentary on news, sports, politics, and other topics. Episode 3. Hello, and welcome to the Road Not Taken Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Capuano. And on this episode of the show, we'll discuss President Trump's national emergency, Amy Klobuchar's 2020 chances, and the new, upcoming Lord of the Rings TV show being worked on by Amazon. So in perhaps the most important recent bit of news to come out of the American political scene, President Donald Trump has declared a national emergency. A national emergency is an extension of the president's usual powers, it's something that extends the reach of the executive branch into affairs that it is not usually able to govern. In prior national emergency declarations, two of which had been declared by President Trump and several more by President Obama, the subject matter of these national emergencies was limited to things like human rights, outside interference in American elections, and topics that most of the American people would have no problem supporting. President Trump's declaration is a little bit different. It has two main components that are angering some members of the American population. The first is the subject matter, a border wall. The idea of a wall itself is one that is very controversial among the American public, both uh, with members of the left and some members of the right opposing it, and the MAGA base so famously uh, responsible for electing President Trump in full support of this. The border wall is a relatively controversial topic, and the president using executive power in order to further that end goal is questionable in and of itself, but there's another aspect that has people concerned. That would be the fact that this national emergency deals with funding. Prior national emergencies were limited to things that were more obviously within the president's power if you stretched it a little bit. This national emergency declaration, however, directly steps on the toes of Congress. The Constitution allows Congress the power of the purse, which essentially means that Congress can tax its members, uh, members being the average citizen, it can regulate interstate commerce, and it can also decide what to do with the money that it's gained through taxation. What President Trump has done just now is taken the role that Congress plays, which is allocating funds, and he's decided to grant himself that power, grant himself that role, and then allocate money to the border wall. So the first concern is what he's allocating it for, and then the second concern is how exactly he's getting the power to allocate that. Normally, a president would have no ability to do this, but President Trump has said that our current border situation is a national emergency, despite the fact that he then later said that he didn't actually need to get this done and he just wanted to get it through quickly, uh, which I promise you is going to be a headache for his lawyers to deal with in court and he decided to get this done. Now, you may recall there being a government shutdown a couple weeks ago. That had to do with negotiations, negotiations over border funding. President Trump lost those negotiations. He recently signed a deal that gave him much less money than he originally wanted, so he decided to declare the, the uh, national emergency to make up the rest of the funds. There are some critiques of this bill, or rather not bills, some critiques of this emergency declaration, as well as some defenses. Uh, But the defenses, to be honest, are rather flimsy, and it's really hard to see a scenario in which this stands up in court. So the first plausible reason that you could give for declaring a national emergency would to be that there is actually a national emergency. Uh, We don't have a very secure southern border, and the argument would be that immigrants coming over are bringing crime. Uh, You know, they're rapists, thieves, murderers, sex traffickers, etc, etc. Statistics don't fully bear that, that claim out, um, but suffice it to say, if nobody comes across your border, then no rapists, murderers, or thieves can come across your border, regardless of whatever the statistical proportion of immigrants that are criminals might be. The second reason that you would be in favor of a national emergency declaration is because you're in favor of them in general, and you like the substance of this uh, emergency. That this is a position that Rush Limbaugh recently espoused on one of his appearances on Fox and Friends. Uh, When asked about how he could condemn President Obama's emergency declarations and yet support Trump's, he replied with essentially the the statement that he thinks Trump is right on this one and he thought Obama was wrong uh, about the nature of his previous executive orders and emergency declarations. The argument here is not that there's an objection to the national emergency being used as a weapon to advance a political agenda but rather the concern would be the political agenda itself. So this isn't based uh, on the means it's rather based on the end goal and if you're a conservative or a MAGA Republican type you know conservative that is in favor of a border wall uh, you might you know not care very much how President Trump accomplishes this as long as he does so. Uh, This also would you know be an argument that appeals to the sort of uh neoconservatives who would say, as long as he keeps us safe and keeps out the people that we don't like, then uh, we don't really care how he does it. On the other side of this, however, there's some pretty imposing arguments uh, you know, that would suggest that a national emergency is not the way that President Trump should have done this. Uh, the first is that national emergencies are for just that, emergencies, and it's debatable as to whether or not this is actually a national emergency. Uh, Again, President Trump's comments are going to weigh against him in court the same way that his comments weighed against him in the Trump v. Hawaii uh, scenario where he started talking about Muslim bans when his legal team in court was arguing that it wasn't a Muslim ban. Uh, So once again, President Trump talking and tweeting is going to harm his case, uh, assuming which it may or may not end up in front of, but probably will uh, end up in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, So the Constitution is pretty clear about the role of Congress and the role of the President. The President is not supposed to have power over funding, and President Trump's giving himself the power to allocate funds will probably not pass a Supreme Court constitutionality review, despite the fact that there is an alleged 5-4 majority on the court. Uh, Justices like Clarence Thomas, who leans libertarian, and Neil Gorsuch, who is a very strict textualist, may not agree with the conservative wing on this one. The libertarian argument against the border wall is that it would require the government to actually take land from whoever owns the uh, the border territory, uh, because the government needs to build the wall on land, so they would take land from private individuals. And the textualist argument is that this is an abuse of executive power. To be honest, if we called the Founding Fathers back today, they would probably be very against uh, an action of this kind, Uh, And it seems hard to be a conservative and to also be in favor of this national emergency declaration. Another potential concern about this would be uh, the possibility that a national emergency is declared with nefarious intent. It seems unlikely that this is what President Trump is doing, given that he is not using this declaration in order to recall military troops or to, you know, take over a portion of the U.S. or occupy it. Rather, he just wants money. Um, But there could occur a situation where a national emergency's power is abused in order to start an oppressive regime. We've seen that be the case with several countries around the world. If you hear about military dictatorships taking power, a lot of times those are started by some sort of tyrant or dictator declaring a state of emergency, imposing martial law, and then taking over. If any uh, of my listeners have seen the Star Wars prequels, That's essentially what Senator and then Chancellor Palpatine does. He declares a state of emergency, extends the state of emergency indefinitely so long as the war is going on, and then uses those powers granted to him by himself to dissolve the Senate and declare himself the Emperor of the Galactic Empire. Again, Trump is not going to be doing that, at least not with this order. But if you want to have a consistent position, you should be denying executive abuses of power in all circumstances. What will most likely happen here is the case will be taken up in court, it'll probably be struck down at a lower court level, and then the Supreme Court will either take the case or it will deny certiorari, which means that they'll just, you know, not review it. And if they do decide to review it, they'll probably strike it down as unconstitutional. President Trump will then be able to throw up his hands and say, look, I tried to his base, who may or may not accept this, and then Trump will get to move on and have this as a talking point. He'll say, the Democrats obstructed me, I tried to get the wall done, I even declared a national emergency, but the Democrats and the courts didn't want to side with me. Of course, this has a little merit considering the fact that the Republicans had two full years of controlling Congress to get this done, and they decided not to, which is the only reason why President Trump has to declare a national emergency now. Uh, But it is probably the tactic he will take, and we'll see how that plays out with his base. So as this develops, uh, both in court and in real time, we'll keep you updated as to how the national emergency, uh, any possible government shutdowns, or issues related to the border wall affect the country. So for our second and final political topic of the day, Amy Klobuchar has decided to run for president, Now, you may remember Amy Klobuchar, if not by name, then uh, by her image uh, and by the mark that she left on the Kavanaugh hearings. There was one point during the questioning of Brett Kavanaugh that he snapped back at her, and she remained very cool, very calm, and handled the matter very well. So Amy Klobuchar uh, has recently announced that she'll be running for president. Um, She is an attorney. She went to Yale University for her undergraduate degree and then attended one of the top four law schools in the country, uh, the University of Chicago Law School. She worked in private practice for several, several years and then was elected to be the first female-elected U.S. senator from Minnesota. Uh, and That was in 2006, and she's been a senator until then, uh, factoring in her you know, re-election uh, bids, which were successful. So a few things about Amy Klobuchar. Uh, The first thing is that she obviously starts her campaign uh, with a bit of an uphill battle, and the reason for that is she is not as recognizable as some of the more popular faces among the left at the moment, Uh, so she's less popular than declared candidates such as Bernie Sanders, or at least, you know, presumptively about to declare. Uh, Like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and some others, but she does run comfortably ahead of some of the even lesser-known candidates like Julian Castro or Tulsi Gabbard. So she's probably not one of the favorites at this point, but she's settled in strongly uh, and securely into that second tier. Um, She also has another problem, which would be recent reports that emerged of her mistreating her staff. Uh, She herself has denied these allegations. She said that she expects a lot from her employees, but that she does not uh, act in an overly harsh way towards them. Uh, But there were some concerning reports about her including that she throws binders at staff and will humiliate and berate them uh, over minor mistakes, Uh, things like sending, you know, angry emails, calling them out repeatedly. And she does have one of the highest turnover rates in terms of her staff in Congress. Um, So we have yet to see if those uh, allegations are true. Um, They may not be. And even if they are true, it does also remain to be seen how much, if at all, it affects her candidacy. But that can't be a good sign for her. Um, There is, you know, some legitimate concern being raised by some folks uh, as to whether or not this is a bit of a double standard. Uh, If Senator Klobuchar were male, would we be looking at these actions and, you know, at, you know, perhaps harsh tones in the same way? Uh, Because she's a woman, uh, we might be treating her a little bit unfairly. Uh, So that is also something to take into account, uh, as well as the fact that um, she, while She is female. She is not completely in line with the image that some of the intersectional left-wing folks that have, uh, you know, taken the driver's seat in the Democratic Party would have in mind. So she runs comfortably behind somebody like Kamala Harris, uh, who is a minority uh, as well as, you know, a minority in the sense of being female, but she's also a racial minority, uh, and some other candidates as well. Uh, Klobuchar is more of a moderate in terms of economics, She's expressed concern about uh, very large and high levels of spending. She wants to keep an eye on the national debt. But she has met all of the litmus tests that the left has set up in terms of social policy. She's pro-choice, she's pro-LGBTQ rights, and she supports Obamacare. So she won't automatically be sunk by her social standing. And if there's one way for candidates to be less than, uh, you know, very extreme to the left and still have a chance it would be by having moderate economic positions. If you have moderate social positions, that's probably a death sentence for any candidate running. Um, But she can get away with this sort of Joe Biden brand of politics. Uh, She grew up in Minnesota uh, pretty much her entire life. She had a bit of a rough background. Her father was an alcoholic. Uh, Her parents were divorced. So she can use those experiences to craft a strong campaign and also uh, to build a strong narrative as well. So she'll be able to have the appeal to the working class, to the Rust Belt voters, in the same way that a Joe Biden would. And she can also appeal to the moderates on the economic uh, spectrum. Uh, So she can say, look, you know, I support all the right social policies, but I don't want to bankrupt the country with extreme, uh, you know, economic ideas. And that's something that will appeal to some Republicans, as well as moderates and independents. So she's essentially Howard Schultz, but more firmly Democratic. We have yet to see how her campaign uh, turns out. Uh, she is apparently a very strong debater, and she'll have a chance to shine during the Democratic debates. Um, and as I've mentioned previously in the podcast, once the field is set and the election cycle begins to churn in earnest, we will be uh, having full, more full podcasts detailing each candidate's strengths and weaknesses, uh, detailing you know their chances, uh, roadblocks, um, and advantages that you know one candidate might have over another candidate. So Amy Klobuchar, uh, in the words of 538.com has settled into the indie role. Uh, She's not one of the name-brand candidates, but she also has enough, uh, you know, backing her up. She has enough content to back her up that she will at least be able to run a very tough campaign. Really, her candidacy will probably come down to what the Democratic Party is looking for in their nominee. In years past, her stances may have been enough to get her elected, but due to the fever pitch that the Democratic Party has raised against President Trump, uh, the base may be looking for somebody more to the left, somebody that more vocally will attack Donald Trump, and somebody who uh, more obviously is separate from him on economic policy. So best of luck to Amy Klobuchar. Uh, We have yet to see how she does, uh, but here's hoping she runs a good campaign and spices things up during the Democratic primary elections. And finally, for this episode, we're going to talk about Amazon's upcoming television show about The Lord of the Rings. So this show is as of yet unnamed. Uh, We really don't know much about the way that this show is going to be presented, but we do know uh, a few details. Uh, The show has actually set up a Twitter account, and they've recently been posting pieces of the map of Middle-earth, which is where the Lord of the Rings takes place, along with some cryptic references uh, to fragments of a poem uh, written by J.R.R. Token that comes at the front of the Lord of the Rings book. One thing that people have noticed about the map is some of the place names describe places that are in the Lord of the Rings, but it uses names that were not used during that time period. It uses their names before the Lord of the Rings happens. We already knew that this series would be a prequel series of sorts, one that happens even before The Hobbit happens, uh, or perhaps uh, parallels, so somewhere in that time frame, uh, but the, the releases uh, from their Twitter account makes it seem as though this series will happen even before that. So prior uh, to anything that we had expected, um, it makes it seem as though they may be discussing things and events that happened during the forging of the Rings of Power. Amazon has poured over $1 billion into this television show. They spent $250 million securing the rights, um, and Jeff Bezos is rumored to have in mind, essentially, another version of HBO's Game of Thrones. The fantasy genre has spiked in recent years. Uh, several television shows, uh, movies, uh, have mirrored the uh, you know, best-selling book series in the fantasy and science fiction genre. So uh, television shows like American Gods, The Chronicles of Shinara, Game of Thrones, uh, as well as some other fantasy television shows have become popular recently, and it seems as though there's a war between studios to produce the next big one. HBO was the most successful in this endeavor with its award-winning series Game of Thrones, uh, and it seems now as though Amazon is seeking a direct challenger. Uh, working with the Lord of the Rings franchise is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's a blessing in the sense that the Lord of the Rings is a name that is recognized all over the world. Its author J.R.R. Tolkien is one of the most popular and well-known in the history, uh, in you know the history of literature overall, and he's probably the most prominent writer ever to write in the fantasy genre. But one of the downsides is that people are already expecting a lot. There are a lot of fans of The Lord of the Rings books, uh, The Lord of the Rings movies, um, and there will be high expectations for this television show. If it's not good, people will be unhappy. If it's not true or if it's inconsistent with the works that Token has put out, fans will be unhappy. So we have yet to see how um, Amazon goes about navigating these waters. They only have a couple of screenwriters that have been confirmed to be working on the show currently, both of which were recommended by J.J. Abrams. But there are some rumors that Peter Jackson may end up working on the television show. So the current uh, screenwriters and producers are, let me just pull up the names right here, John P. Dane and Patrick McKay, who are, yes, the dual showrunners uh, recommended by J.J. Abrams. So as I mentioned, Amazon obtained the rights for $250 million. Uh, That is one of the largest amounts that a TV shows' rights, or I guess property that will be converted into a TV show's rights, have been purchased for. But Amazon had to outbid Netflix. Um, if you know you are a Netflix subscriber, you could imagine them adding a new Lord of the Rings show. Um, but Amazon also, uh, you know, has deep pockets. Jeff Bezos is uh, now well known as one of the richest people in the world, notwithstanding his recent uh, split with his wife. Um, and this may be the most expensive television show in history, not just in terms of how much it's going to cost to produce, uh, but also uh, in terms of how much of a budget the showrunners have to work with. Uh, so as I mentioned, there's a $1 billion figure that's been thrown around. It's, we're not exactly sure that that's actually how much uh, you know of a budget the show will have, um, but if it is, then that will be the most expensive TV show in history. So we can expect a lot of high-quality acting as well as high-quality effects And hopefully some good screenwriting as well. So we'll keep you updated on that television show. It's not expected to be finished and debut until around 2021, Uh, but you know it may end up happening earlier or later depending on the pace of the show. We'll uh, also—I should probably throw this in right now—keep tabs on another show which is uh, rumored to be being produced at the moment um, by Amazon as well, if I'm correct. Uh, which would be The Wheel of Time. So The Wheel of Time is a bit less known to mainstream audiences, uh, but that was one of the best-selling fantasy series uh, ever. And in the same way that Amazon is uh, trying to have The Lord of the Rings be its next big project, um, The Wheel of Time also may be successful for them. So we're going to try to keep you up to date on some of the new television shows that are coming out, Um, not just in the fantasy genre, but I just wanted to mention those two today uh, because, uh, you know, they've been in the news recently over some developments as to their production. So that just about wraps it up for this episode of the Road Not Taken podcast. Uh, As always, you can email us at plcap2020 at gmail.com. That's plcap2020 at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, uh, concerns, comments, reviews, feedback, you can uh, email the show there. And we do hope to have a very exciting guest lined up for this week. Um, We're still confirming that he's available, um, but we should have some great political discussions coming up in the near future. So uh, again, thank you for listening, and this has been the Road Not Taken podcast.